you have a Bible in your hands, if you could open it up to uh, the book of 1 John, it's towards the very, very end of your Bible. We're in 1 John chapter 4 this morning. Uh, we're going to be in verses 7 through 21, and I'm going to read those verses uh, right now, and then we're going we're to pray together. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, this is what it says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Father, as we come uh, right now into this moment that you've made, we ask you, God, to speak to us. Lord, we, we really um, do need you. Uh, we are so desperate for you, whether we realize that or not. It's just true. God, we are desperate for you. We need you. Um, you're the one who's give us, given us the breath in our lungs, God. Our hearts, you're the one beating our hearts, God, that you've given us life. And you've given us more than that, Lord. You've given us salvation at the expense of your son. And, and so we really, um, we pray, God, that your word would accomplish its purpose in our lives, that we might live for you, God, that we might glorify you, that we might display uh, your love within our church and to our city. So God, we, we humbly come and ask you, Lord, now to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote in his uh, classic work, Knowing God, it'll be on the screen there, John's twice-repeated statement, God is love, is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible. I don't think he's over-speaking here. I mean, love itself is a really tremendous thought, isn't it? Very tremendous thought. But to consider that God himself is love, I mean, no, that's, that's pretty tremendous, isn't it? That's really tremendous. But can I ask you an honest question this morning? Uh, do you find it hard to believe those words? Uh, and not just like an objective way that God is love, yes, and he's loving to other people, but that God actually loves you. 
Do you find it hard to believe that? Uh, Carol King uh, once wrote one of the most famous songs back in the 60s. It like soared to number one in the charts, performed by the Shirelles, titled, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow? Right? If I played it for you, you're like, oh yeah, I know that one, you know? Huge song, really popular, and still covered by many people even today. And uh, I kind of wonder, though, why the song is so popular. It, it is a nice song. It, it's pretty. It's got a nice melody, that kind of thing. But I wonder if the reason why it's so popular is because it resonates with our human experience so well. Let me just consider the last word, verse of the song. It says, I'd like to know that your love is a love I can be sure of. So tell me now, and I won't ask again, will you still love me tomorrow? The irony is she sings that line again. She keeps asking, you know. Love can often feel like trying to hold water in our hands. You know, it's really difficult. It's leaky, you know. And and even when it's extended to us, we can really struggle to even accept it, can't we? I wonder if you resonate with Carol King when it comes to the twice-repeated most tremendous utterance in the Bible. You might be thinking, I'd like to know that God's love is a love I can be sure of but will he still love me tomorrow? Uh, love is the primary theme of our passage. I mean, you, you, you could have just checked out a little bit and like heard it repeated a lot. I mean, even in our passage this morning, the word love occurs some form of 32 times from verse 7 all the way down to chapter 5, verse 3. And what we're intended to see this morning is that God is love, that he is the initiator of love. And to the degree that you believe that he loves you, you will be able to love him and and others in that same way. So in verses 7 through 11, this is kind of what we see this morning, that we love because God first loved us. In verses 12 through 16, we see that we love because God is in us. And then lastly, we see in verses 17 to 21 that we see what God's love actually changes for us in the world. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Verses 7 through 11 here, we begin again by seeing that we love because God first loved us. Let's just look again there in verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us so that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John begins this section by calling his readers a name that he's called them many times as we've walked through this book, uh, this letter since last fall. He says, beloved, he's saying you are loved, right? You are loved ones, therefore love. Hey, loved ones, love. God's calling them, he's calling us through this to love one another. And what he means by that is we should love other believers. And yes, scripture gives us a huge precedent to love our neighbors, to love people who aren't believers, to even love our enemies. But here, the primary concern is that you and I actually love other believers. That's what he's getting at. Why? For love is from God. And if we love That is a signal that we've been born of God, that we are in God's family and that we know God, not just in an intellectual, I know he exists kind of way, but that's a relational word. It's a relational kind of knowing 
Just like if I said to you, do you know Beyonce? You would say, I know Beyonce, right? But if I asked Jay-Z, you know, her husband, do you know Beyonce? He would say the same thing you just said. He'd say, I know Beyonce, but he would mean something very different than what you meant, right? He knows Beyonce in a way you don't know Beyonce, okay? And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing for you, okay? But nonetheless, that's the kind of knowing John is talking about, right? Our love for other believers is a sign that we know God because love flows from or out of God. This is saying that God is the spring which love flows from, okay? Have you ever even wondered this, how anyone in the world is ever able to love at all, even in an incomplete kind of way, right? How how is love even like a thing in this world? Well, inasmuch as anyone has even the smallest capacity to love, this comes by the grace of God, you guys. He is the author of love. He invented it, if you will. He's the originator. He's the source of love. Uh, Michael Reeves, uh, I couldn't more highly recommend, he wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity. It's wonderful. He writes in that book, this God, John says, is love in such a profound and potent way that you simply cannot know him without yourself becoming loving. So true. Then verse 8, we see if, if you don't love, then, if you don't love, conversely, then you can be sure that you don't know God. Why? Because not only does love come from God, but God himself is love. So we are told here that we should love one another because love is from God and because God is love. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you do not love those that are loved by God, right? Then, then you do not actually know God because that is incongruent with who God is. Your life is leaving evidence all over the place as to whether or not you know God. And the evidence that we're looking for is love. Right? Notice what this is not saying. This is really important. Notice what this is not saying. This isn't saying that God loves, okay? as if it's just like an ability God has. It doesn't say that, does it? And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that love is God, does it? That's really important. If you think this is saying love is God, which many people flip this into meaning, this would de-personify God and make your desires, it would make your feelings God. And in return, you would get things in life, um, things like I read this November. I saw an article in the London Times Um, This is the title, I walked out on my husband and kids for true love, and I'm not going to live with any aching regret. I don't subscribe to the London Times, so I was like, I'll take the free subscription. I want to see what this lady is going to say. And so I did, and I read this article, and it was kind of hard to read. The, The article description read, a mother writes about the most agonizing decision of her life and why all the trauma was worth it. And she goes on and she describes, last Christmas I left my family, my husband, my four children to be with my lover. It was something I had considered and dreamt about and finally acted on. And then she writes at length about how her past year had been awful. And she writes in the article, though, in a way where she plays the victim. And it's kind of honestly difficult to read because of the way she comes across in a very pretentious kind of way as she proclaims that she doesn't even regret it that it was all worth it. And she even seems to feel the need to empower others who are thinking of doing the same thing as she does by writing this. To anyone reading this who fantasizes about doing the same thing, I have to warn you, 
You have to keep your eyes on the distant future. Envision your happiness, because the present day is fearsome. It's worse than leaping off a cliff, yet I have jumped the chasm, and I am on the other side. I have done what I had to do. I'm living with integrity and happiness. I'm living with the man I ought to have been with when I first met him. This is, this is what happens when you reverse the statement, God is love, into love is God. So what happens. So this doesn't say love is God, though. This says God is love. God is love. Just like the sun is light, right? God is love. But light is not the sun, and love is not God. But the sun is light, and God is love, right? And just as the sun shines and you can't stop it, even if you keep sleeping as long as possible and you stay inside and you pull those blackout curtains all day shut, his love is still radiating from his being. Guys, this is tremendous. What is the love of God like? What is the love of God like? Well, God is not only the author of love, he's the definer of love, and his love is defined in the person and work of his son, Jesus, which is fleshed out a bit for us in verses 9 through 10. And each of the ways that John notifies us that he's fleshing out what love is, is by using these statements. He says, in this is the love of God. In this is love. We are being given some glasses here, if you will, to kind of correct our vision, to even understand what is love. If God is the source of love, what is it? Do I have it? Right? And we see here in verse 9 that the love of God was made manifest among us. It was made visible. And so we go, well, how was it made visible? It says you, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Just think about this. This is amazing, right? This is amazing stuff. Jesus was sent, okay? He had a mission, and it's in his sending that love is made visible. But the love of God wasn't meant to simply be looked at. It's not just like God was made manifest in Jesus Christ, and we go, oh, there is love. You know, there it is over there. That's not exactly what happened in its fullest sense, is it? It had a purpose. God's love was realized so that you might live, meaning you and I, apart from the sending of Jesus into the world, we have a condition that can only be described as death. And he is sent not so that you and I would live apart from him, but so that we would actually live through him. Right? So the definition, the first definition given about God's love is that his love makes dead people live. That's what happens. The second definition is in verse 10, and John begins by pointing out that love is not to be understood in terms of our love for God. Right? He writes this, this is love, not that we loved God. So the definition of love is not my love for God. It's not at all defined by my love for God. That's not love, John is saying. Okay? Having made that clear, he writes that love is to be understood in terms of God's love for us. He says, this is love, that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Right? The word translated here is propitiation, or you might be holding a translation that says atoning sacrifice relates to the removal of guilt that comes from the dealing of our sin. Right? It's, it's the removal that happens through a sacrifice, through a payment, through the death of someone so that I could have my sin dealt with and therefore the guilt from that sin removed. 
So you want to know what this love is? It's this. The eternal son of God was sent to die as a sacrifice so that your sin would be dealt with and therefore your guilt removed so that you can move from death to life. It's with this kind of understanding that John says God is love, you guys. So the answer is, you know, the questions are like, why did God save you? Because God loves you. Well, why does God love you? Because he's love. The point of this is re-driven home in verse 11. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, well, we also ought then to love one another. If you've been loved by God in this way, then we should love those who God loves. And oh, but now, now we don't get to interpret this however we like. We know that this isn't just telling me to be nice to you or merely that I need to put up with you although that's probably a good starting point with a lot of people, right? This is telling me that I'm not supposed to wait until you love me. This call is to initiate love and to love in a I'll die so that you live kind of way. And don't be deceived. I know when I say that thought, you're like, man, that's hard, that's painful, that sounds like death. But do you remember what verse 9 says? It tells you that in this sort of self-giving death to self kind of way of loving, you actually start living. That's where life actually begins to happen. I mean, just consider um, the two most famous seas that you read about in your Bibles. You've, you maybe have heard this before, but it's, it's worth noting. The, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, you see it there on the screen, and the Jordan River that flows between the two of them. We have these two famous seas, yet only one sea actually has life in it. Only one teems with life. Why? Because that sea has an outlet. It's the Sea of Galilee. There's life in the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea is, it's dead, right? Go figure. It's a good name, right? Right? The Dead Sea actually has more fresh water flowing into it, but everything within it just stagnates, shrivels, and dies. Why? Because it has all intake, has no output. As this passage is calling us to something, it's telling us that God doesn't make Dead Sea Christians. Love flows from God. He's loved you, and now we love other people. He's calling us to be Sea of Galilee Christians. So if love comes from God, if it's been poured into your heart, and if love by definition is self-giving, then you will give that love to others whom Jesus died for. We love because he first loved us. But next, John moves to showing us in the next few verses that we love because God is actually in us, okay? Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Uh, Verse 12 is a really important verse because it's introducing the things that John wants to unpack in the rest of the chapter. We're introduced to a few things here. One, this reality that God is invisible is what he's saying. No one has seen God. He also talks about God abiding in us. And then thirdly, he talks about the idea of perfect or complete love. And it's in these verses that John unpacks the second reality 
of abiding in God and God in us. And notice what he says in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. This is the first two by this statements that he's unpacking here, that he's unraveling what he states there in verse 12. And here we're being told that we know that we abide, which we've talked about this at length since the fall, about what it means to abide. And so just as a reminder, the word abide just... So it's a weird abstract word, but it means to make your home in something. It's, it's what you set your roots down into kind of idea. It's location, union kind of language. And he's saying, we know that we abide in God and he in us because, so the reason is that he has given us his spirit, right? And then in verse 14, he continues by saying again what we read in verse 9, that the Father sent Jesus to be the Savior in which he dies in order to save us. And then we see in verse 15 that our abiding in God and he in us by the Spirit occurs through your confession that you actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Then verse 16 says, So therefore we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And then we see that abiding in love is the same as abiding in God. And how can those things be the same? It's because God is love. Right? According to his definition. Do you, do you see something really critical here, though? The Trinity is, like, all over the place. It's actually really important in verses 13 to 14. This is important because the only way love can even be a thing is as if God is triune, if he's three in one like we see in verses 13 through 14. God cannot be love if there's no one to love, Right? If he's not a trinity, then we'd actually pity God, wouldn't we? And we would believe that he would have to have created us so that he could love us, so he could just experience love. We would, in effect, be giving life to God if he's not a trinity. But this isn't true at all, because Jesus says even in John 17, what? Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. We know this, right? And now I'm being told in verse 12 that if I love you and God abides in me because God is love, it's through the giving of the Spirit that we are now invited into the realities of God's love. It's the gift of the Spirit of God that makes known his love. So just consider when Jesus was baptized, what happens in that scene, right? Jesus comes up out of the water and the Father echoes out so everybody can hear, this is my beloved Son. That's the same word used in verse 7 and 11 about you. This is my beloved son. And then everybody testifies. They see the spirit descending upon Jesus, right? And in that moment, witnesses see that happening. We see in Romans 5, 5, Paul writes of how God pours his love into our hearts. How? By the spirit. So I should love you guys, not just because I've been loved by God, but because God is in me. John is building on this first section because I'm not merely being inspired to love you, although that's powerful motivation because I've been loved. I'm given the resources to love you because the God who is love lives in me. If God who is love and has experienced love within the Trinity since before the foundation of the world, if he's in me, then I will love, right? We love because God is in me and I'm in God. Okay? Um, I love going to concerts. Uh, one of my favorite things to do at a concert, it might be weird, but I, I do enjoy it at the moment just to turn around and look at all the crowd. 
okay? And I'll admit it's a little creepy, okay? So I have to kind of act like I'm looking for somebody or something, you know? Oh, I don't see you, okay, you know? And um, whatever. But it's interesting to me to do this, okay? Because with every single song that's played, there is a beat, right? There's a melody, there's a rhythm. And it's, it's wonderful, I think, to watch a crowd of people just focused on one thing and this song filling a room. And what you'll notice is every single person is moving to that beat, just in, in corporate union with one another, you know, just like listening and enjoying this song, right? It's, it's filling the air, right? Could, could you imagine if you looked at a crowd who is captivated by that music, filling the room, and every single person's bobbing to that beat, that there's like one person just kind of going nuts and dancing in a weird way that's not in tune, right? That's a really hard thing to do, right? That's why you don't normally see that, do you? Right? If you see it, you're like, that person's on something. Okay? Because it's hard to do. I mean, you do this all the time. Like, if you're thinking of a song where there's a song in the room, you're like, oh, man, how does that song go? What is it? And you, like, can't think of it until that other song fades in the background, right? And you turn it down, and you're like, that's what it is. Right? Because whatever song you hear, that's the song you, like, move to. Right? This is, this is, you can't intake another song. Well, why does everyone concert in the concert move to the same beat? Because that's the beat that's filling the room. Why are they doing that? They're in the room. They're abiding in the room, right? They are in the room. The beat is in them. I mean, just try, just try dancing to a different song, right? Even if you're bad at dancing, it's really hard. John is saying, by your faith in Jesus, you're now in the room. You're in the room and the music is in you, right? Because God is in you through your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, you now have all the resources you need to love with the quality of love that God loves you with. So John can say in verse 16, we know and believe. Another word is we rely on the love God has for us. I know it. I rely on it. To know God's love, it's, guys, it's not a privilege for just a few lucky Christians. This is the normal Christian experience because the Spirit is in me. Have you felt these words in verse 16 in the depth of your heart? I mean, do you hear the music? You will if you're in the room. You'll sway, you'll march, you'll dance, you'll bob to this beat because you're in the room. You'll sing the tune because the tune, it's in you. Because God is in you. And this is the song he sings. We know. We rely. So we love because God's loved us. And we love because God is in us. Well, what does that change? It changes a lot. And that's what you see in the final few verses here. 17, it says what? By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, 
Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the second by this statement that he's unpacking from verse 12. And in it we see that through our experience of God's love and through his abiding in us, and we in him, love is perfected. It's the word of completeness. It's it's perfected with us. And what does this perfect love do? It changes something about you, and it changes something that's visible in the world. Just consider what it changes about you first. You are told that God's perfect love gives you confidence for the day of judgment. You see that in verse 17, right? right? There's a day coming. There's a real day coming, you guys, where God is going to right all wrongs. And we love the idea of this day because we want God to bring justice to other people, don't we? If someone wrongs us, if someone's hurt us in really deep ways, we want and we feel the need for them to pay for their sins. We all want justice for the ways that we've been wronged. So we hear this and we're like, yes, let it out, God, you know, punish. But we don't, we don't want justice for the ways that we've sinned against God. Right? You see this with kids? Something breaks in a room. You just say, all right, who broke this? And a lot of little voices go, I didn't do it. You know, there's a lot of confidence. But there's that one voice that's like, I didn't do it. You know? (laughs) They're just, you know, there's a little bit of timidity there. And you know who did it. When we think of how we've wronged God and other people, this doesn't create confidence, does it? I don't feel a boldness of like, yes, we're good. So when we think of the day that Jesus returns and judges the world and judges everyone, we experience timidity or fear. We whisper that, like, no, not me. But God's love, guys, has changed your relationship with God. But let's be real. How many of us sit with confidence this morning without any of this kind of fear? I mean, just to be really clear... Fear of God in the Bible is a normal thing. It's a good thing. We even sang about it, right? Or sang about it. It was our call to worship. God's steadfast love is for those who fear him. So we're saying here we shouldn't have fear. Well, that's not, there's a good kind of fear in the Bible, and that's talking about people who have a deep reverential respect and honor of God. In other words, it's the people who have a, a right and humble view of themselves that God is God and I am not, Okay? But this kind of fear being described here is different. It's kind of like a distancing ourselves from God in a way that we're not meant to. Well, what fear are we supposed to not have in exchange? We are to have confidence. Well, verse 18 says, fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Well, what punishment? Well, contextually, it's clear it's the day of judgment. That's what it's talking about. Why is it so critical that we don't have this fear? Because this kind of fear, if you fear God's just going to punish you, that's incompatible with love. They don't coexist. That's like saying I'm hot and I'm cold, right? We're like, you're sick, you know? Like we can't be hot and cold really at the same time, can we, right? This is the same. This is true of this kind of fear and true love, perfect love. They can't coexist together. But do you fear God in this way? Do you fear this kind of punishment? It's not hard to, right? I mean, uh, Charles Hodge says, 
the great difficulty with many Christians is that they cannot persuade themselves that God loves them. And the reason why they cannot feel confident in the love of God is that they know they do not deserve his love. On the contrary, that they are in the highest degree unlovely. This is a huge problem, though, as it relates to our passage. Uh, James Fraser points it out, and he says, Human nature is so formed that it cannot love any object that is adverse and terrible to it. And Jerry Bridges comments on what Fraser says and says, What Fraser was essentially saying is that we cannot love God if we think we are under his judgment and condemnation. I'm just, I'm just hoping I don't receive what I think I have coming. I'm not free to love. Afraid. Self preservation kind of stuff. But this is saying that day that you're going to stand before God is a day that if you are in Christ, you should be confident and you should not fear. Why? Because of the way God's loved you in verse 10. Do you see it? In this is love. You didn't love God. God loved you, though. How did He love you? Oh, He paid. He paid. He sent his son, Jesus, whom he's loved before the foundation of the world, into the world on a mission to not just download information, not just give you some tips for better living, but to die, to atone, to take away your sin and therefore your guilt. So you don't have to fear God in that way. You can love God. Guys, Christianity is not an audition. It's a celebration, isn't it? I'm not auditioning, hoping that one day when I die, I get the part. I'm on the team. It's a celebration now. I am loved. I mean, this is the heart behind the very possibility of the gospel. Even being a thing, even being true, God's love is not a response It comes first. It initiates, doesn't it? How can you love God? Verse 19 tells you, he first loved you. Uh, This perfect kind of love casts out fear, your passage says, which means that there is a lot of love going around in this world that may seem like love, but it's really just a shadow of true and perfect love. And the love going around in this world is pretty imperfect and it doesn't cast out fear. Why? Because the love that is imperfect and it's going around this world says to you constantly, I love you, and then it puts a comma right there, you know? I love you. Uh, if you be who I want you and need you to be, I'll love you if you finally change, you know? I'll love you if you don't let me down, if you can continue to wow me and give me those butterflies, if you never point out my flaws, we can go on and on. You know, there's just a lot of commas. It's a long sentence, isn't it? This is the love we live with. I mean, just think back to the 90s, Backstreet Boys, right? Don't, don't act like you don't know the Backstreet Boys, okay? <laughs> they sing about a lot of comma kind of love. Just think of this one. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, that sounds nice, right? This is good. Comma, as long as you love me. People ate this up, right? 
you ate it up, didn't you? You did. You sang it. Guys, you sang it too. I know you did. You ate it up as if this is real love, huh? As long as, as long as, comma kind of stuff. If I could say it this way, God's love in the gospel couldn't be more different. He declares to you in the crucified death of his son, I care who you are. I know better than you know where you're from. And I care deeply about what you did. And I still love you. God has spoken over you. I love you, period. End of sentence. I'm faithful to love you. My love is full. It's perfect. It's complete. You might think, well, what if I gave away all my money? Like, like literally everything. Wouldn't God love you just a little bit more? You're like, well, what if I went and lived on the foreign mission field in mountains? I didn't even have plumbing. And I spent my whole life spreading the gospel amongst people who've never heard the name of Jesus. What if I finally treated my spouse with the mercy and grace that he calls me to? What if I finally took the trash out without my parents asking me every time? You know, what if I went a full week without a single lustful thought? Or what if I went an entire year without sinning in that way that just entangles me? I just can't get rid of it. I just go back to it. Oh, I did it again. What if I went a whole year, a whole year? Wouldn't God love me just a little bit more? Just a little bit. Guys, he wouldn't. He can't. It's perfect. Christian life is not an audition, celebration. It's been given to you freely, but at a great cost. The light of God's love, let that warm your heart. What do you, what do you think will now happen when you take that kind of perfect love into your life and into your relationships? What do you think will happen? Well, verse 17 answers that, and this is what changes in the world. The perfect love also produces something else in this world because it says, as he is, so also are we in this world. Notice this. We've already been told in verse 12 that no one has ever seen God, but then we are told that God the Spirit who is love abides in us. Do you see what this is saying? If God is in us and our way is love, this makes the invisible God visible. God is love, and when we love, we make him visible. This is a witness to our world of the truth about God, what a powerful witness to our city in a world that seems to only know an I'll love you, comma, kind of love, I'll love you as long as you love me kind of thing. When we love with an I'll love you, end of sentence, kind of faithful, self-giving love, that's, you're that weirdo in the crowd bobbing to a different song, aren't you? And they're like, what's he listening to? That's not the beat of this world. That's a different tune. If this world is swaying to one beat and we're dancing to another, if someone turns around like a creeper and looks into the crowd, you're going to stand out. Guys, things in life are hard to describe, aren't they? Especially if it's not a visible thing. Like if someone says to me, what's a hammer? I could say, well, it's this thing, the rod on it. You know, it's like a, it has a rod and a stick. I can't even describe a hammer. You know, but I'm like, there's a piece of steel on the end of it and you break stuff with it. You know, you drive nails into wood. You're like, okay, I kind of know what a hammer is. But if I said to you, what is joy? You're like, oh, it's kind of like happiness. Or what is peace? You know, you're going to say, oh, it's kind of like calmness or something. If I say to you, what is love? You know, how are you, what are you going to say? What are you going to say to that? In the life of Jesus' church, we should be able to say, there it is. Do you see it? It's right there. It's right there. 
It's right there when you see that uh, family receive that foster child into their home. There it is. It's right there when um, Mike and Carrie adopt Precious Owen. There it is. Oh, it's right there in Brian and Chris's 49th wedding anniversary. There it is. That's what we do. We go, oh, there it is. As he is, so are we in this world. And there's room for a lot more of it. Guys, if this room is filled with a declaration and a reception of God's love, if that's the beat we hear, we will move to it as we scatter throughout our week. Let me stand by asking you this. What if, stream with me, what if we were a people who loved first and not second? What if we were people who initiated love and not reluctantly just responded to it? What if? This is the vision, this is the call, because this is your God. Father, I do pray this morning that you would cause us to just bask in your love in a way that maybe we haven't in a long time. God, that we would believe that you love us according to what your word says you do. And I know for me, Lord, many times that's just hard to believe. And so, God, we pray that by faith you would help us to believe. God, help our unbelief. Help us to see the way that you love us. God, to believe these things are true and to see the realities just spread, God, throughout our city, beginning in this church and your church all over this place. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.